Welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry Stevens, and I'll be your host. In this series, we are going to look at the German invasion of the Soviet Union during the Second World War. We're going to look primarily through a lens of military history, trying to understand the weapons, tactics, and strategy. However, there will also be plenty of discussion about the political and economic history of the conflict, as well as the various crimes against humanity that occurred during the war. Before any of that, however, we are going to look at the events that preceded the conflict. There will be three introduction episodes. The first, this one, will cover the First World War and its aftermath, up to around 1923. The second will concern the period from 1923 to the beginning of the Second World War, with a focus on the rise of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Finally, the third episode will concern the conduct of the Second World War from its beginning in September 1939 to the beginning of the German invasion in June 1941. A reminder that this intro is meant for people who know relatively little about the context of the Second World War. If you are not one of those people, feel free to skip ahead to the main episodes. With that out of the way, let's begin. At 3.15 a.m. in the early morning, of June 22, 1941, German units began to push across the Soviet border as most Soviet troops slept. These German forces cut barbed wire, cleared mines, and destroyed Soviet border defenses from the Baltic down to the Black Sea. Supported by aircraft and artillery barrage, they were the first wave of the largest land invasion in world history, involving some 3.8 million men of the German military, as well as their Finnish, Romanian, Hungarian, Italian, and Slovak allies. This massive undertaking would become known as Operation Barbarossa. Although this marked the beginning of by far the largest conflict between Russia and Germany, it was hardly the first. Throughout their various iterations, the two nations had often been at odds over influence in Central and Eastern Europe. Beginning only a few decades after the Russian Empire and the Kingdom of Prussia, a predecessor to Germany, were proclaimed in 1721 and 1701 respectively, the two found themselves on opposite sides in the War of Austrian Secession in the 1740s. And then, from 1756 to 1763, came in the conflict during the Seven Years' War. But in the decades after that, in the late 1700s and into the 1800s, the two empires, both growing in strength, seemed to have an understanding. The two cooperated to dismember and absorb Poland and fought together against France in the Napoleonic Wars. After this, the Congress of Vienna helped maintain peace between the major European powers. Prussian efforts to bring smaller German states under its control in the 1860s were facilitated by a noted lack of Russian resistance, contributing indirectly to the establishment of the German Empire in 1871. As the 19th century came to an end and tensions between the various European powers heated up over the scramble for colonies and desires for dominance in Europe and abroad, Germany and Russia managed to maintain a more or less peaceable relationship. Neither side particularly wished for war. Russia's vast landmass and seemingly bottomless manpower were a concern for Germany, while Germany's industrial strength and military prowess intimidated Russia. Through a complex web of treaties, which were typical of pre-World War I diplomacy, all three of the major powers in Central and Eastern Europe, that is, Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary, managed to secure an, an uneasy peace. This relationship lasted until 1907. In 1907, Russia left its tentative alliance with Germany to join the Triple Entente. The Entente, an understanding between Russia, 
France, and the United Kingdom was established as a counterbalance to the alliance between Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Italy, the so-called Triple Alliance. Fairly unimaginative, but what are you going to do? In Germany's eyes, this was a severe threat. Before 1907, Germany had been able to focus the bulk of its efforts on its longtime enemy and rival, France. But now, any war with France would certainly bring in Russia, creating a two-front war that would stretch even the mighty German war machine. The years leading up to the First World War would see a rapid pan-European arms race and escalating diplomatic tensions, particularly over the Balkans. The Balkans, a region of Europe long occupied by the Ottoman Empire, had come up for grabs as Ottoman control waned, vying to fill this power vacuum were the Russian Empire and Austria-Hungary. For its part, Russia claimed kinship with many of the Balkan peoples on basis of shared Slavic ethnicity and Orthodox faith. But Russian ambitions were tempered by distance from these newly formed Balkan states. On the other hand, Austria-Hungary did border the Balkans, and many within the power of the empire wanted to dominate the region to reassert its status as a great power. It was this conflict that would provide the spark for the Great War. The exact details are both often discussed, but also too lengthy to do justice here. But in brief, the assassination of heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, by a Balkan nationalist, led to an Austrian ultimatum to Serbia. This ultimatum was theoretically so the culprits and supporters of the assassination could be punished. In reality, however, accepting the ultimatum would severely compromise Serbian independence. On the other hand, refusing it would give Austria-Hungary a reason to attack Serbia. Serbia did not accept it in full, and despite Russian warnings that it would protect Serbia by any means necessary, war began between Serbia and Austria-Hungary. From there, a series of mutual defense pacts turned this regional conflict into a European war, and Russia and Germany now found themselves at war again. German planners had prepared in case the feared two-front war ever came to pass. They knew that Germany could not win a sustained war against both France and Russia, but they hoped that by eliminating one in a quick and decisive campaign, they could then focus all of their efforts on the other, avoiding the disadvantages of a two-front war. France would be the main focus in the opening stages of this war. Eventually, this strategy developed into a plan, nicknamed the Schleifen Plan, for one of its main creators, Alfred von Schleifen, who led the German general staff. The Schleifen plan would theoretically be conducted like this. The strongest German forces would be assembled in the west and go through neutral Belgium to attack French forces where they were weakest. They would smash through French defenses and quickly push deeply into the country, the attack led by a powerful spearhead. Within a few months, the German advance would have captured much of the country, forcing the French to sue for peace. Once that had been done, the newly freed forces would be transferred to the east, where they would be used to finish off Russian resistance, ending the war in Germany's favor. The plan began rather well. German forces swept through Belgium, facing resistance that was unexpected, but nothing that would stop them. They continued through France, taking much of the industrial and resource-rich regions. However, German forces were eventually halted in northern France before the plan could be completed. The exact cause remains debated. Some argue that the Schleifen plan was fundamentally flawed, and that the infrastructure in the relevant regions of Belgium and France was incapable of transporting enough men and supplies to complete the mission. Others claim that Belgian resistance slowed the German advance enough 
to allow French and British forces to assemble a powerful defense capable of stopping the German attack. Still others claim that German commanders lost their nerve and reassigned forces from the spearhead leading the attack to the flanks, fatally compromising the German attack. Whatever the reason, German forces were stopped at the Battle of the Marne in September 1914 and the war in the West bogged down into a bloody trench war. In the East, however, the war progressed much differently. Russian forces largely outnumbered their enemies, but were poorly armed and poorly led. Superior German commanders, leading better trained and better equipped men, were able to crush large Russian armies and advance deeply into the enemy's territory in the campaigns of 1914 and 1915. This created massive casualties and inflicted humiliating defeats on Russia, which inflamed a, a discontent that had been already been stewing in the country for decades. Although Russia was a massive country with great natural wealth, it remained one of the poorest nations in Europe. It was largely populated by subsistence farmers who lived hand-to-mouth with a growing group of poor factory workers living in Russia's major cities. On the other side of the spectrum were a tiny group of wealthy merchants and landed nobility, usually related or within the circle of the Tsar, the Emperor of Russia. The poor majority were frustrated and angry with Russia's inability to modernize, their own poverty and poor quality of life, and a number of national humiliations Russia had suffered within living memory. Much of this discontent translated to support for alternative political movements. Notably, socialist and communist groups benefited significantly, including a radical communist group known as the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin. In his party supported the violent overthrow of the Tsar and his empire by the working class, Russia's exit from the war, and the abolition of capitalism and private property to be replaced by a centrally planned economy. All this to create a classless society of perfect equality. To Lenin, the instability and chaos of war provided the perfect opportunity to launch the revolution. 1916 saw something of a change in Russia's war fortunes. Russia's leadership and industry had somewhat recovered from the humiliations and defeats of last year and had adapted to a war footing to some extent. British and French forces in the same year launched many offensives in the West, hoping to break the stalemate and overwhelm Germany. Better yet, Italy had joined the war against Germany and her allies and was now drawing large numbers of Austro-Hungarian troops away from the Russian border. Taking advantage of all this, Russian forces launched a huge offensive against Austria-Hungary in western Ukraine. Named for its designer and planner, Alexei Brusilov, it was a smashing success. The Russian Brusilov offensive recovered significant ground and inflicted at least one million casualties on Austro-Hungarian and German forces, and even threatened at times to knock Austria-Hungary out of the war entirely. Launched in June, it petered out in late September due to the poor Russian logistics, high casualties, and large-scale transfer of German units to aid suffering Austro-Hungarian troops. Despite the positive signs of 1916, the domestic situation in Russia continued to worsen. Heavy casualties sapped Russian morale, and living conditions were made worse by rationing by 1917, tensions had reached a fever pitch in many Russian cities, including the capital of Petrograd, which is now modern-day St. Petersburg. It was in Petrograd that a series of events would begin that would mark the death knell of the Russian Empire. Before we go any further, 
We should note that at the time, the Russian Empire still used the Julian calendar, when most nations operated on the Gregorian calendar. As such, dates in Russia were about two weeks behind those in the rest of the world. This can sometimes cause confusion between the names of events and when it seems they actually happened. However, for convenience, we'll be using Gregorian dates to make things a bit simpler. By March of 1917, protests were nothing new in Petrograd, and there were plenty of reasons to protest. Opposition to the war, rationing, low wages, poor conditions, and government crackdowns on opposing views were all major concerns for residents of the capital. On March 8th, which happened to be International Women's Day, factory workers on strike were joined by demonstrators, mainly women, who were emboldened by the holiday. While large and even violent sometimes demonstrations were not rare, something was different on this day. What it was exactly is impossible to say, but things quickly got out of control. The authorities sent police and soldiers to break up the protesters by force, but many soldiers shared the same concerns and sympathized with the protesters, often refusing to fire on them and some even joining the protesters. Within a short time, Protesters had gone from mere protests to attacks on government buildings and facilities. And they seized important infrastructure and government buildings such that by that night, the government no longer controlled the city. This would later become known as the February Revolution. Now you see that the dates don't always line up with the names. When this news reached the emperor, Tsar Nicholas II, he thought it was something that was overblown and a product of hysteria and fear on behalf of the Petrograd government. Eventually, though, Nicholas realized the severity of the situation. Nicholas was a stubborn man and not the most competent czar by any means, but he wasn't dumb, and he understood the grave implications of an anti-government mob taking over the capital. And he also understood that a lot of the anger was directed against him personally, as the representative of the nation charged with seeing it through its difficulties and making sure it prospered, something that Russia had not done for years and years. He exhausted all of his possibilities regarding putting down the rebellion and uh, possible alternatives, but eventually he realized that he was just fundamentally unpopular. And on March 15th, he resigned on behalf of himself and his son. He then offered the throne to his brother, Michael Alexandrovich, who was already a Grand Duke, but Michael refused the offer, wisely realizing that he would have a little support as well, and that much of the anger was also directed against the Tsar as an institution, rather than merely a man. With no one to wear the crown or you know, hold the title of the Tsar, it was decided that a provisional government would take leadership over Russia. This provisional government would be led by the Duma, the legislative body of the empire, who for years had been ignored or overruled by the Tsar in violation of past agreements, but now the Duma would be leading the government, and thus the nation. It was made up of liberals, social democrats, constitutional monarchists, and some more moderate socialists. It set out to continue the war under the terms that the Russian Empire had entered it, while also trying to establish Russia as a Western European-style liberal democracy. Many of the protesters were satisfied with this change, but the more extreme of the left-wing activists, including Lenin and the Bolsheviks, saw this as a stepping stone to communist rule. 
In the wake of clear government weakness, socialists and communists all over Russia had begun to establish over 700 of what were called Soviets, which were local councils of workers and peasant representatives who functioned as sort of local government. These Soviets competed with uh, the forces of the provisional government for influence and legitimacy throughout 1917. At the same time, Russia was still at war with Germany and Austria-Hungary, as well as Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. As things at home worsened, things on the front did as well, whole Russian units began committing mutiny or refusing to fight. Trust in the government before the February Revolution was low, and although the Tsar was disliked, he did still represent a long-standing institution that many Russian people took pride in. With this gone and leftist promises of peace, bread, and land becoming increasingly attractive to many Russians, a lot of people saw little use in continuing to fight and die seemingly for nothing. Any legitimacy that the provisional government might have had was essentially snuffed out on November 7th, in what history would later call the October Revolution. Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, had returned to Russia by now. Uh, he was actually sent by the German government, who hoped that he would create unrest and help destabilize Russia, which he fully intended to do. However, for the last few months, he had been hiding out in Finland, hoping to avoid attention from the Russian secret police, who were very familiar with him. However, he believed that the time was now right for him to return to an active role in leadership. And on October 10th, he attended a meeting of prominent Bolsheviks in Petrograd. During this meeting, they discussed, debated, and voted on whether the Bolsheviks should continue on a violent revolutionary path. And in attended to vote, the major leaders agreed that the time was now right for a total seizure of power by leftist elements. And they began planning for it. At this point, all they really needed was a spark, something they could use as an excuse to begin the uprising, and the provisional government would hand that to them on November 6th. On the morning of November 6th, forces of the provisional government shut down the Bolshevik printing house and confiscated machines and equipment and burned papers. This was not new. The government often shut down or uh, banned papers that opposed uh, the status quo. That same day, they had attempted to shut down another left-wing and two right-wing newspapers. In response, however, the Bolsheviks deployed their armed militias to retake the printing house and began seizing the vital facilities around the city of Petrograd. By 5 p.m. that day, Bolshevik forces were in control of communications for the entire city, essentially cutting off provisional government forces in the city from those outside the city. The next day, November 7th, Bolshevik forces and their allies took key government buildings, facilities, and other tactical points, mostly without a fight. Most members of the provisional government, which was based in Petrograd, fled to the Winter Palace, one of the Tsar's former residences, and by sundown that day, the Winter Palace was the only major location in Petrograd that was not under Bolshevik control. However, large crowds of armed mobs and just protesters began gathering outside the Winter Palace, demanding the provisional government surrender, and the garrison defending them was not in any particular mood to potentially lay down their lives for them, and many of them just left their posts. And by 2 a.m., the Winter Palace had fallen, and except for the Prime Minister of the provisional government, a man named Alexander Kerensky, 
pretty much all of the major players in the provisional government were taken prisoner by the Bolsheviks. That essentially killed the provisional government, and it put Lenin's Bolsheviks in the prime position to take control of what was essentially now a leaderless Russia. And Lenin uh, intended to turn the Russian Empire into what he would call Soviet Russia. As one of his first acts as leader of so-called Soviet Russia, Lenin sought to end the war. Issued the day after the October Revolution, his so-called decree of peace called for an end to hostilities and the initiation of peace negotiations. A ceasefire was declared on November 15, 1917, and the negotiations took the next few months. These negotiations were dominated by German and Austro-Hungarian demands, and the newly established Soviet Russia had almost no room to negotiate. An army for the new nation was not officially established until January 28, 1918, and with little more than militia units and their new commanders and with uniforms. So as you might expect, terms were pretty harsh. Uh, signed on March 3, 1918, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was signed in modern-day Brest in Belarus, demanded significant concessions. Russia would have to give up any claims to the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Finland, Russian-occupied Poland, much of Belarus and Ukraine. The Ottoman Empire also demanded the return of parts of the Caucasus that Russia had taken in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878. Soviet Russia also agreed to pay Germany 300 million gold marks in reparations. Brzezny Tusk was kind of a double-edged sword for Germany. While it did successfully conclude the Eastern Front and established a powerful sphere of influence for Germany in any potential post-war era, and while it also freed up over a million experienced troops that could be used in the West, German forces still had to occupy uh, this territory, and that itself would eventually take up a million troops. However, in the short term, it did greatly strengthen the German position on the Western Front. A few weeks after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was successfully signed and uh, combat in the East ended, a German offensive in the West, codenamed Operation Michael, was able to temporarily break the stalemate with aid from newly transferred troops and push back British and French forces by about 65 kilometers, but was ultimately unable to bring German enemies to the table. Following that, there was a massive Allied counteroffensive in the summer and fall of 1918, including massive deployment of the U.S. forces, who are now arriving to Europe at a rate of about 10,000 men a day. This advance pushed German forces to the edge of collapse, and by now the political and economic situation in Germany had turned dire and there was a threat of revolution within Germany. Facing the potential of revolution, as well as British, French, and American occupation of German soil, an armistice was signed on November 11, 1918, which ended combat and is often said to be the end of the First World War, Although at the time of signing, the terms of German surrender and any post-war peace were still very much up in the air. Those terms would be negotiated at the Paris Peace Conference over the next six months. And the treaty itself, the Treaty of Versailles, will be signed on June 28, 1919, five years to the day after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Germany was required to surrender all the gains it had given itself through the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and also had to cede control of core territory to various nations, including France and Belgium, as well as the newly established countries of Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Lithuania. This left millions of Germans as, as minorities in these new countries, and Germany also had to, had to surrender its colonies in Africa and Asia, which would then be divided among the victors. 
Militarily, Germany would be restricted to an army of 100,000 men who would be prohibited from having or developing airplanes, submarines, tanks, or poison gas. The German Navy would be restricted to six battleships, six cruisers, 12 destroyers, and 12 torpedo boats. Military training would be limited, and the German general staff, responsible for developing strategy, was abolished. In effect, all these restrictions meant that, the, that Germany could no longer conduct an offensive war. The Treaty of Versailles also forced Germany to accept responsibility for the damages it had committed during the war, which created the prerequisite for reparations. Those reparations came to 132 billion gold marks, or $33 billion at the time. However, it's also worth noting that after further negotiation, Germany only had to pay $15 billion of the $132 billion, and the remaining $82 billion would only be paid if Germany could show that it had the capacity to do so. The morality and pragmatism of these reparations, as well as the treaty as a whole, was hotly debated. Some, notably British economist John Maynard Keynes, saw the terms of the treaty as too harsh, and he predicted what he would call a Carthaginian peace, in which a now resentful Germany would regain power and initiate another war. On the other side was French Field Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who also thought that the treaty was insufficient, but because it was too light on Germany not too harsh. In Foch's eyes, the treaty did too little to inhibit what he saw as Germany's natural aggressive tendencies, and he believed that once Germany had recovered, it would begin another war. In his words, the Treaty of Versailles, quote, is not a peace, it is an armistice for 20 years. His words would end up being prophetic, if nothing else. Despite months of negotiation, plans for what would become of the shattered empires of Europe, that is to say Germany and Austria-Hungary, were remarkably incomplete. Uh, people that had lived in huge multi-ethnic empires for hundreds of years were now free and demanded the right of self-determination, the right to create their own countries that represented them. In Central and Eastern Europe, these became an immediate source of contention and played a decisive role in shaping the future of both Germany and Soviet Russia. For Soviet Russia, leaving the First World War did not bring them peace, but put them in a very different kind of war. Once they had seized power in Russia, they had two goals to consolidate that power in Russia, and to remove any threats, including former allies. The second goal was to bring as many people as possible under the Red Banner, preferably those who they had lost by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Lenin had entered in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, hoping that an international proletarian revolution would overthrow the German government and essentially render the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk moot. This did not happen, but Germany's loss in the West, and the results of the Treaty of Versailles accomplished much the same thing, and left huge swaths of Central and Eastern Europe up for grabs, which put them in direct opposition between Soviet Russia and the various ethnic groups who wanted to create their own states. Adding to the Bolshevik enemies were the litany of groups within Russia who opposed them. Sometimes these groups would fight together, sometimes would fight apart, and sometimes would even fight each other, but they consisted of Tsarist loyalists, liberals, and even some moderate socialists who formed a loose alliance known as the White Russians. The Bolsheviks struggled to defeat these groups who would become known as the Russian Civil War, which in some senses is more of an umbrella term, encompassing dozens of smaller wars that would last until 1923 and claim millions of lives. The Russian Civil War would take place across nearly the entirety of the Russian Empire, from the plains of Poland to the shores of the Pacific, and the Bolsheviks would struggle to retain control of Russia and expand communist influence further. The war would see brutality on both sides. To be fair, there were about 20 sides. 
but on all sides to be brutality. Most famously, the massacre of the Tsar and his family, including Alexei, the Tsar's teenage hemophiliac son. To the west, Soviet forces fought a series of wars against newly established states like Ukraine, Poland, Finland, the Baltic states, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. These nations fought for survival, and the Soviet bear fought to expand its reach. These wars were a mixed bag for the communist forces. Belarus, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia were swallowed up, but Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland managed to survive and solidify their independence. On another dimension, various political factions within Russia that did oppose the Bolsheviks fought a series of rebellions and wars within the country. These groups were supported by various expeditionary forces from the U.S., Britain, and Japan who sought to strangle a new communist state in its crib before it could gain power. These efforts would prove unsuccessful and unpopular at home, and any significant resistance to Soviet power in Russia was extinguished by 1923. The end result was the solidification of Soviet power and the incorporation of various nations into the new state. Befitting its new multi-ethnic population, Soviet Russia was rechristened the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR, on December 30th, 1923. It would also be called the Soviet Union. For Germany and for the German people, participation in the Russian Civil War and its surrounding conflicts was sporadic and not always government-sanctioned or led. German forces occupying the territory ceded to it by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk did fight with Bolshevik forces, mainly militias. However, they were later forced to leave by the Treaty of Versailles. After that, however, many German soldiers, sort of as the army at this time, but many still with their arms and otherwise disaffected and most virulently anti-communist, joined what were called Freikorps, which were essentially paramilitary groups. These groups were motivated, as I said, by a hatred of communism and anger at Germany's loss, and they wanted to get out somewhere, and for many of them, the East was somewhere they could they could fight and remove that anger and try and achieve some sort of victory. The Freikorps played pretty major roles in many of the wars of independence, as well as wars against Soviet influence within Central and Eastern Europe in the, in, in the period between 1919 and 1923. They were particularly noted for their brutality, often not taking prisoners, killing prisoners, and not being particularly kind to civilians on either side. However, by 1923, something approaching peace had finally come to Europe after nearly 10 years of the continent tearing itself apart. The Soviet Union had established itself as the world's first communist nation, and it served to threaten establishment European powers. Western Europe, the seat of the establishment powers, was composed of liberal democracies who were virulently opposed to communism and wanted to see it killed and, at the very least, opposed its spread. Separating the two were a series of nation-states formed between 1918 and 1923 that created sort of a defensive line separating the two enemies, often called a cordon sanitaire. Spanning the gap from 1923 to the beginning of the Second World War in 1939 are a series of vicious and complex political maneuvers, as well as some military conflict, that led to the rise of fascism throughout Europe, the strengthening of the Soviet Union, and generally set the stage for the German invasion of the USSR. We're going to try and cover all of that in the second and third episodes of this introduction.